I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. So we're coming to you with a very interesting situation today. We're not actually in our normal studio. We're coming to you from the COVID-19 studios. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the best you've looked since we started doing this. Yeah, you know what? You know what? (laughs) Shut up. We're we're kind of adapting and overcoming today. We're doing our part social distancing. Um, So we still have Jason with us. I'm here. How's it going? How's it Uh, going? A bunker in an undisclosed location. (laughs) <laughs> but I still have a suit on because I'm still in the in the interview mode. Do you have toilet paper? Uh, no, but I'm very resourceful. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and uh, we also have a very special guest with us uh, today, a friend of both of ours, colleague, um, consider him one of my personal mentors, paramedic Jonathan Baker. How's it going, man? It's going great, guys. Good to good. be on the podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, how's it going in your bunker? Uh, my bunker is well. Is it air conditioned? Uh, we haven't made it that far yet, but uh, hopefully by summer. Uh, hopefully, you all still need to be in a bunker by summer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pollen it's bunker. A, for sure. uh, a pollen bunker. Yeah, I, I wish the pollen was the only reason I was staying inside right now. That'd be great. Um, so we really wanted to talk today. Obviously, COVID nineteen, the coronavirus, is a very hot topic right now. It's a very debated topic of discussion. It's a uh, subject that has caused a lot of strife, and we definitely certainly do not want to take it lightly and uh, make light of a situation that has costed people's uh, lives, costed patients' lives. However, what we want to do today is we want to kind of look at it specifically from a paramedic's perspective. Um, We don't want to talk about the politics. We don't want to talk about the epidemiologic processes or the models or uh, the the economics of it. We want to focus strictly on how this is affecting providers in the field. Yeah, I think that's that's important because I think that's being left out. Everybody wants to throw politics into this. And should we have done things sooner? Should we have done things more drastic? Um, You know, how do we get more healthcare workers? How do we do um, you know, things on a big scale and how it maybe affects a lot of people globally. But I think you're right. I think it's important. We need to, you know, we need to treat this as uh, kind of go to the people that are actually treating these patients. And, um, you know, Jonathan's, uh, you've been on the front lines uh, for a long time. So tell us a little bit uh, kind of about your background, um, you know, what kind of service you work for, how long you've been a paramedic and kind of what's your role, not just as a as a paramedic, but kind of as an industry leader as well. Oh, wow. Industry leader. Um, <laughs> so I've spent the last two decades of my life working for the same service. It's a combined fire and EMS department. Uh, I've been a paramedic most of that time that I was there. And over the last 10 years or so, I've gotten into the field training process. And I also do a little bit of EMS education. And I really enjoy that. It kind of gives me a chance to... Uh, try to instill some love for the job in people. And I think the more you know about your job, the more you enjoy doing it. And even now, I still feel like I learned something new at least every shift, if not every call. Well, I just want to point out something really quick. When you talk about that you have spent the last two decades working for the same department, man, that is that is a rarity these days, 100%. And I'll, I think uh, it's... Uh, 
think it's a lot about the people that you work around. If you, if you enjoy the department you're at, mm. everywhere has its problems and everywhere has its, its upside, you know, but if you, if you like the people you're around and you like the mission and you like your department, you're, you're just as well to stay there. We'll have ups and downs, but I can't think anything else I'd rather have done for that amount of time. And then just to ask you kind of specifically on this, because there's a lot of people that are in fire-based uh, EMS, are you primarily on the ambulance or do you go back and forth? Are you primarily on the fire truck? Where do you spend most of your time? I spend virtually all my time on the ambulance. The, the box has always been my first love. I enjoy the, the firefighting aspect of things, but uh, I think anyone that knows me would say that that box is where I belong. Well, and that's, it's certainly, uh, I don't take, I don't take your skill and your talent lightly. And again, I, it's a privilege for me to be able to teach alongside you. Um, because I mean, you know, we, we call Jonathan the brain at the school that we teach at, because I mean, his, his just resting working knowledge of physiologic processes and the, the medications, how they work and, and your ability to translate that to students, man, I can't thank you enough for uh, what you're doing as far as the EMS education side of things. It's a privilege to work there. Uh, having to teach people anything makes you remain sharp at that thing. So when I first started doing it, I realized, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot of very basic stuff that I, I, I need to review. I need to refresh and it really helps out. I, I feel much better about my own patient care skills, teaching other people my patient care skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to kind of get down to it, did you ever, over the past 20 years, did you ever think in your wildest dream or, or nightmare rather, did you ever think that you would be on the front lines of a global pandemic? I think that uh, everyone, to some extent, sees stories from other nations, uh, especially uh, Asia, whenever they have outbreaks or something and think, well, how would we handle that here? Do we have the resources to do it? What would it be like to have to question whether every patient you run is infected and how would we handle it? I mean, we, we all play through that scenario in our head, I'm sure, but and in a way, it's always been sort of an abstraction to a lot of us. And I think this is a, a real wake up call to, oh, wow, it's happening and it's happening here. Well, and especially when, you know, especially when we're, we're teaching new EMTs, paramedics, whenever we go through uh, clinical scenarios, you know, uh, has PPE, BSI, you know, that thing that if you come out of EMT school, you've literally said PPE, BSI, I don't know, a thousand times or more. Um, does that end up becoming something that just, uh, becomes part of our vocabulary and we really don't take it seriously? Or, um, is that, uh, is that something that's really been brought to light more now or have we been taking it seriously? I think in regards in the, well, at least in the past, in regards to that, we, we did our, our part in putting on the PPE. I, I think that in the past, again, we, we weren't nearly as cognizant of cross-contamination as we are now. So in the past, I'm, I might not be so much aware of how often I'm, I'm switching my gloves out or if I touch that with this glove and that would, you know, after I changed gloves. Now it seems like there's a heightened sense of awareness of, of the cross-contamination aspect of it. Most people are, if, if anything, more uh, aware of the need for it now, I would say. And uh, it can be pretty jarring to people to to realize that the patient in front of them actually has the the COVID nineteen virus, and it's it's a wake up call for a lot of people, and it's, it can be frightening for sure. 
Well, and, and I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, pretend by any means, you know, the shifts that I've worked, it's, it's, it's very nerve wracking and, and almost kind of creates a, uh, a paranoia, so to speak, to where it's just like, okay, what did I touch? What do I need to clean? Uh, how, you know, that's like you're saying, I mean, you've never really, I've never felt this way before, but you know, I've only been doing this for about 10 years. You know, you guys have both been in the field for a, a long time. I mean, Jason, have you What's the closest thing you guys have come to this over the past 20 years? I mean, can you can you think of anything that's brought us anywhere near the present state that we're in? No, and certainly not. It's a global pandemic. I mean, like, you know, the last global pandemic was back, you know, in the late 1800s, early or the early 1900s, excuse me, with the Spanish flu. Um, and and so we've never seen anything like this. Of course, we've been through things like SARS. We've been through things like Ebola. But they have all been, of course, um, you know, regionalized. And, uh, you know, we had the Ebola several years ago. We were bringing people back, especially to Georgia um, from Africa and other areas. But, you know, I think we especially as I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I think as Americans, especially or as Westerners, we get this very narrow focus that, uh, oh, these are all just bad things that happen in developing countries or third world countries <laughs> or places that just aren't us. So we kind of see these things. We read about them. But. We just really don't take them seriously. And in fact, I think you can probably see up until even probably the first week in March, we really weren't even taking this thing seriously until everything changed. So I think this is a, an absolute uh, anomaly that we're just not used to. And uh, so we've had to adjust very quickly. So certainly nothing in my career have we come up uh, on this level. Um, you know, maybe we should be even treating uh, just regular influenza like this. Uh, year after year. Um, in fact, there was uh, there was a report out um, a week or two ago that uh, C. diff was essentially eradicated from a group of hospitals in the Midwest. I can't remember where they were. And they figure it's only because everyone has this heightened sense of awareness to wash their hands. So just the fact that people are now taking COVID-19 seriously is already maybe starting to change our practice uh, with other things, but, um, you know, I think this is absolutely new. So I'd like to actually hear a little more from Jonathan on, uh, absolutely on, on maybe how this has changed. I mean, you've been doing this for 20 years. It's, uh, you know, it's obviously has changed, but how does this change, uh, just your patient contact from the minute you get the call and start treating that patient? How has this changed? Um, you know, your assessment, your crew dynamics, uh, and kind of all those things together. A lot of that is it starts on the way to the call. I know we always talk about that's where your size up begins, but you start reading call notes and you immediately start talking with your crew about, okay, well, this is, this is how we need to, to handle getting to this patient. Uh, it could be send in one person, perhaps uh, talk from the doorway until you can determine what their complaints actually are, because we all know that not all 911 calls are triaged appropriately. What comes in is an ankle pain. You get in there and they're, they're coughing all over you. And the next thing you know, you're, you've gone too far. So we have to be mindful at all times of, are we wearing the appropriate protective equipment? Uh, I would say, you know, minimum of mask, eye protection, gloves, and until you get to the door and then you find out more, you might have to gown up. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've seen that seems to have been successful is limiting contact with crew members. For example, a lot of people are leaving engine crews outside the residence and 
if someone needs to drive in the ambulance, someone who's had no patient contact stays in the front in a closed cab and drives in the patient care technicians in the back. So whoever's whoever's involved in direct patient contact kind of maintains that with them and no one's getting out and doffing their PPEs to drive or anything like that. Uh, That seems to be a, a good way to kind of isolate it. And as far as cleaning goes, we clean everything now. Things that we're pretty sure we didn't even touch. Everything's getting cleaned after each call. So the decon process is a lot more involved with this and more so than it was uh, back when MRSA first became a thing or maybe even the C. diff of recent years. So now, is, is that every patient or is that just the patients that you may be suspicious of? Uh, that's every patient, just about it for me lately. Um, give you an example. Uh, without going into much detail about a patient, but complaint comes in as one thing you get there and you quickly discover you've got a cough. No, I don't. Well, I just heard you cough. I, I didn't cough. I'm like, I just heard you. Okay. So that, that totally changed how we're going to triage that patient. You know, just because you are complaining of one thing does not exclude the fact that you might also be a COVID patient. So you have to be mindful of that on all calls. You know, you said something that's pretty interesting uh, that I know they do. We do a lot in the hospital is this uh, clean versus dirty um, provider to where, you know, anytime even going back to like things like MRSA, but now uh, going into COVID-19 that we we have a clean person, a dirty or, or a group of people that are clean, a group of per- people that are quote unquote dirty and they shouldn't cross contaminate. So when you said that about uh you know, who's going to drive. Is that something that you just personally have implemented with your crews or is that anything like that become a department wide model? I would love to take credit for that good of an idea, but that, that didn't come from me. That's a, that's a department policy that's been encouraged over the last few weeks. Okay. And uh, that's good. I think we're, I think we're having some success with it. Uh, for example, yesterday, uh, my Lieutenant drove us in and, Never had any patient contact. I don't even think he knew the what the patient even looked like. <laughs> so it's very much isolated. So now as far as your assessment, <clears throat> you were talking about how you kind of get to the doorway and you make the the judgment call of, all right, I need to don some more PPE or I'm good where I am and this patient doesn't really look like they're symptomatic at this point. Do you say, do you, I mean, I've heard of a lot of people putting a mask on every patient or you wear a mask on every patient. Is that is that the point that you've gotten to now? Yes. Uh, most hospitals that we transport to don't want people coming in without masks on. And quite frankly, I don't want to be talking to a patient without a mask on. So I wear a mask. They wear a mask. Everybody's happy then. Is that an N95 or a regular mask? Uh, we we use the N95s. The, the patients do not. They just go with a conventional mask. So let me ask you specifically about uh, a type of patient uh, that is becoming, there's actually a lot of controversy around it now, and that's cardiac arrest. Are you doing cardiac arrest differently, either personally or as has the department come up with any kind of uh, different protocols uh, with cardiac arrest now? Well, given that we, we don't know the origin of the arrest when we go in, you have to treat all cardiac arrest as potential COVID patients. So with with those, we have to have full PPEs on. And 
be especially mindful when dealing with airway issues. That's probably our greatest risk for exposure. Uh, one thing that I think everybody should consider is a lot of patients who can't place their own masks on their faces, we're putting those masks on them, and that's a, a high potential to be exposed to uh, COVID. So given the, the nature of the arrest is unknown most of the time when we first get there, uh, you have to treat it like it's due to COVID and full PPEs, including mask, gown, gloves, eye protection, everything. Are you changing your airway strategy at all from endotracheal tube to uh, supraglottic airways? As, well, as far as that goes, uh, our new uh, video laryngoscopes might make it a little bit easier to not get secretions on us. So we're hopefully going to have some success with that. Again, it's, it's really early in the process, but uh, I'm afraid that myself included, a lot of us, if, if they need an airway, we're, we're giving them an airway. So, but yeah, I'd probably be more inclined to use a supraglottic airway and given the situation we all find ourselves in now. And Jason, to, to kind of spawn off of Jason's point of a specific type of call, you know, cardiac arrest, we know that there is some inherent danger to the people in the back of the ambulance, the providers in particular, whenever you aerosolize treatments, let's say if you have a an, an asthma patient or a patient who's locked up and you want to give them some type of breathing treatment, what have you found uh, to mitigate that risk? What what is what is your own personal strategy there? Uh, a lot of times you're you're considering what else can we do other than aerosolize COVID all over the truck. Um, we don't have any filtered nibs, so that's a huge risk. And, and I'm sorry, I, I don't, I don't see how our personal protective equipment can adequately protect us against that in particular. Um, sometimes I think that people, they jump to the nib far too quickly and this might be a good way of, uh, getting people, well, let's just, uh, increase their oxygen a couple of liters and see how they do. Uh, that might be a, a consideration there. Um, but again, I'm sure that you, you're going to see some uh, some better technology in the future coming to the back of ambulances as far as administration of nebulized treatments. So even before we get in the back of the ambulance, let's talk about call volumes and types of calls. And l- let's say it's a patient who calls 911 and they don't necessarily need to go to the hospital, but prior to this, they typically would have. Have you seen a change as far as that is concerned? Have you seen patients be more willing to either tough out their symptoms or go to an urgent care rather than uh, be transported by an ambulance? Have you seen any type of fluctuation in that at all? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that especially in the first days of everyone panicking, no one wanted to be near healthcare providers. I, I remember walking through a grocery store and people actively avoiding me <laughs> because I had a, had a uniform on that said paramedic on the sleeve. So uh, that was a thing for a while. But now I think as the a lot of the newer infections are reaching the point where they don't feel safe staying at home any longer, we're going to see an uptick in, in call volume, especially for these sick patients. Let me ask you, as a 20-year veteran, uh, so this is just me asking, asking Jonathan your feelings about this. You know, we, we have people that call 911 and we have to transport them. We cannot talk them out of going. We cannot give them other options if they want to go to the hospital. Is this a time, do you think, that uh, we should revisit that 
and make a determination on whether or not this patient actually needs to be transported? It's, that's a that's a really complex question to get into because uh, I think you would agree with me. It's a slippery slope when you start letting paramedics individually decide, oh, you need to go and you don't need to go. Because I can think of plenty of times in my career where I had an incorrect diagnosis in the field. And had I not transported that patient, I would have really regretted it later. Uh, however, it does bring up the point where I think educating the patient as to the risks of going and visiting the ER when they could stay home or talk with their doctor via the telephone or the internet. Uh, I think educating them as to the risks that no matter how much infection control we do, you still have a potential for exposure to something that could be very dangerous to you. And we're already doing that with family members. We're, we're telling them, you know, if you're waiting in a waiting room, who else is in that room with you? Sick people. And this, this virus spreads, well, virulently. So you should really consider that prior to going to the hospital. You know, you're not, you're probably not going to be able to see your loved one. So we try to get that point across and maybe we should start doing that with these patients who probably don't need an ER, educate them to the risks of going. Yeah. And I'm surprised that we haven't come up with better options as uh, we would do like telehealth or something like that with uh, community paramedic type stuff where we can actually put them in, you know, video conference in with an ER physician to actually do either further assessment or to be able to relay that assessment. So Jonathan, I want to talk about something too, that's, uh, you know, this will be very, I think this will hit home for the people who are not only the fire-based EMS systems or, I mean, just any emergency services in general, I think this will hit home with them. What's the morale like in the station right now? Because I know typically, and and we've kind of had this conversation, you know, before we even talked about having you on the podcast, you know, we're, we're kind of sick and demented and twisted people. Naturally, we laugh about things. We make jokes about things that scare us and that we, that we deal with, uh, we deal with things and we deal with stress in a particular way. Has the morale and the, the stress coping mechanisms changed around the station at all that you've seen? Uh, it's there, there's still a lot of, of jokes. That's just how we deal with things. We, we try to, you know, probably anyone that's not involved in EMS would, would think our humor in this profession is, is terrible, but that's how, that's how firefighters and paramedics in general deal with, with situations that give them stress. As far as the nerves go, uh, there's more, there's been more serious conversations about this where, where joking gets left aside and people are suddenly really serious, really concerned. And just, they, they just want to know, did the patient I transport have COVID or not? Am, am, am I about to, to leave the station and somehow contaminate my family? Uh, that, that worries everyone. And those are, those are serious conversations that, that are taking place. And, it you know it can swiftly turn back to to joking around about a serious situation as we're want to do, but overall, I think uh, the anxiety levels probably increase quite a bit. Um, if anything, just the the constant evolution of what we're doing about this. Um, one of the things that's that's been interesting to me about the whole situation, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen it too. Most of the time, uh, the things that we deal with uh, have you know pretty 
well-developed courses of action. Uh, for example, there's, there's generally accepted best practices for almost everything out there. And the COVID epidemic is, is we're getting to watch it evolve in real time where one week it's it, the best guidance is this. And then the CDC says something else. And now it's this. And I think that that, that roller coaster of what we're doing today because it does change and it's, it's no one's department's fault. It's we're learning more about it and trying to refine how we treat it. That's and how we track it. Even the, those things mm -hmm. are definitely so fluid that it's probably causing a little bit more stress just in that regard, let alone not knowing if the patients that you're, that you're running have the, have the virus or not. Do you think it, it causes so much stress that people tend to, create narratives or specifically on social media or things like that, they, they get addicted to, to the stress. So I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. That's uh that's one thing that I've, I've been noticing is that pretty much any form of social media that, that I get on, I see everything from every political viewpoint, blaming the other side, everyone turning science into politics and vice versa. And on top of that, the, the greatest thing of all is the conspiracy theories that are out there. I, I never thought that anyone would be able to find the technology to actually turn a virus into a radio wave and broadcast it out across the nation, infecting people. As crazy as it sounds, there are <laughs> otherwise intelligent human beings to believe that right now. Wow. <laughs> Unless you have your tinfoil hat on, then it can't penetrate you. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's great. This, this podcast is now going to be the source of a tinfoil shortage. So. <laughs> toilet, paper, toilet. toilet paper and tinfoil just do not get them mixed up. Uh, <laughs> oh man. This is, but again, it's, it's just an expression of the, the overall feel of the nation right now is, is that's going on. It's, it's that pressure test where the whole nation's under pressure and we're starting to see cracks form. And uh, maybe we can learn from it, though. Let's, let's hope so in the future. So, Jonathan, <laughs> let me ask you, you. You've been a paramedic for a long time, and you've taught paramedics, uh, taught EMTs, and you really uh, an industry leader, not just in the way that uh, you know and understand things, but in the way that you carry yourself and can, can set an example. What do you say to that person that's considering a profession uh, in EMS? Um, or public safety, and because of this pandemic, now they're thinking there's no way uh, that I should go into a profession like this. What do you tell them? To your question, I, I think that if uh, if I was talking to someone new, that I would point out the fact that not everything that you hear on television is accurate representation of what we do. That not everything on social media is representative of what we do. The same reasons that made you want to be involved in EMS. Uh, should not change over this. We're out there every day with the potential for exposure to it. And I feel that the EMS that I know is strong and still working efficiently. Uh, yeah, there's, there's new considerations, but get used to it. Things change constantly in medicine. We're constantly finding new treatments, new things will pop up from time to time that we have to worry about or deal with, but we always make it through that. So if you use good infection control precautions, it's not as bad as far as your exposure chances. So don't let this sway you. So Jonathan, thank you so much for coming, man. This is this has been very helpful. I think that uh, that this is going to be a little bit of a 
breath of fresh air for a lot of folks to kind of get away from the politics and just kind of think about the human side of this. So thank you for your time. And again, thank you for what you do in the education world as well. Well, thank you guys both for, for inviting me on the podcast. I, I think it's great what you guys are doing here. And, uh, again, both of you guys, I consider really good friends and respect both of you. Uh, we've, we've all had a lot of time to, to be around one another and get to know each other. And I can't think of any two people I would rather have this conversation with. Thank you for having me on here. Well, thanks for doing what you do. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.